When you come across someone like Hopkins, you've got a choice which is to go broad or to go deep. I'm going to go broad because I think that will do most justice to his life. As we look at Hopkins, uh, it's important to understand that Hopkins was a, as much a philosopher as he was a poet. He wasn't just good with words and flamboyant. He was an extremely disciplined theologian and philosopher, as you will find out. He was a genius from the get-go. He was an, a standout at school. He was an extraordinary charismatic person. Um, although the image of him, which is true in many ways, is a recluse, he was extremely convivial and had great friends and was, was, a, was just, a, a, by all accounts, a very wonderful human being. So you wouldn't quite say that about Coleridge, who was a bit, a bit more, um, perhaps had a darker side. But Hopkins, if Hopkins had a darker side, it was depression. And I understand that because, you know, I think I get a bit depressed at times, not, not clinically, but it's the dark side of creativity is depression. I don't think you ever get, because you have a manic sort of mind that you can't quite control, it runs in too many places, and, and, and you do go through highs and lows. So, so that's what we get in his poetry, is manic highs, some of the most magnificent praising poetry anyone's ever written. And also, at the end of his life, what are called the terrible sonnets. I can still remember when I went to university, I was first year university, the first tutorial, and I thought, oh, this will be really, what a wonderful intellectual landscape. And we're sitting down in Professor Wilkes' office, and there are 20 of us there, and this young woman began to talk, one of the students, and said, well, I'm going to talk about the terrible sonnets, and I think they're, they're called that, not because they were bad sonnets, but because they were, and I was wondering, for, waiting for everyone to laugh, or <laughs> but nobody laughed, and she was dead serious, like, as if someone would actually call these the terrible sonnets, because they were awful. <laughs> Uh, but that, that, but th these were toward the end of his life and they, he confronted depression um, for reasons I'll talk about. Certainly a psychiatrist I spoke to said in his experience he'd never seen, heard, seen anyone articulate the kind of fragile grasp of reality that depression invokes in people that Hopkins could capture. So what you'll understand therefore behind what I'm saying is, as F.R. Lever says of him, his was a genius not just of technique but of character because he really exposed himself. He was incredibly honest about what he said. So I want to, I want to begin just talking some, uh, broadly about his poetry. And that means talking about words. That means talking about word. Uh, and we Christians, of all people, we actually should be absolutely intrigued by language. We, we should be intrigued by the philosophy of language because this is the name given to our Saviour, to the second person of the Trinity. John, in particular, you know, chose Logos as the attribution to Jesus. Bentley Hart says in, his, uh, in the notes to his translation of uh, the New Testament, what everybody knows, which is the word Logos is almost untranslatable. It doesn't mean word. They had a word called Lexus, which was sort of like word as in, you know, stuff on a page. Word was just a big idea, which could be something like the governing idea behind the universe. It was about the whole conceptual substrate of reality. Very, very difficult to translate. So this big word is the word that John, of all people, a Jew, in the opening of his gospel, uh, chooses to describe what God has done in this 
man, Jesus. What, what do we know about words that is significant? In, in order to answer that question, we can answer it by introspection. We now have to take our humanity very, very seriously. And the, the critical issue is that all human activity begins with a word, as in an idea. We are not dogs barking. We're not trees swaying in the breeze. We begin with ideation. People think ideas don't matter, but ideas become words and words become action and actions reshape reality. A very concrete example of this for me would be the conversations my friend John Sanderson had, who was the head of the army in Australia and he ran the peacekeeping force, uh, UK peacekeeping mission to Cambodia. And he told me about the conversations he had with the Khmer Rouge in the jungles. Everybody except Pol Pot, Pol Pot's wife, his 2IC who was then later killed by them, conversations. And he said what struck him was how sophisticated these people were. He's out in the jungle and he's getting French food, red wine. Because they began, Pol Pot began in Paris, Sorbonne. You know, radical young students. So what happened in Cambodia began with conversations in cafes in Paris. And you ask yourself, you could look at a million people dead or you could look at a conversation at a cafe in Paris. What if it went that way, not that way? What if you heard about Christ, not Marx, what if he took it differently? So just a concrete example that whatever goes on in our heads initiates new reality. So words begin things. But the, the issue with that is that as words become linear and structured into sentences and written down and therefore accessible, they seem to lose the kind of connection with, with where they begin. We, we all know the words that come out of our mouth don't do justice to our feelings, you know what I mean? They, they, they don't quite. I mean, by the way, one thing I won't talk about tonight was Hopkins' stunning meditation in his journals on what it is to be a human being after he'd meditated for three weeks. Just breathtaking. This diagram is how I've always thought about poetry and in particular Hopkins. On the left-hand side is mystery. That's how stuff that's going on inside my mind, my consciousness, is inchoate and unexpressed. And it's, as it comes out, it gets words. And as the words get more structured, they get linear. And we end up with a text, and the text creates action. One of the great truisms of writing and technology is the further downstream you go, the easier it gets and the more tools there are. The closer you are crawling back to the mystery that began, the more words start to fail you. And that's always been my huge interest, is, uh, my, my lifelong interest is to crawl back into the imagery of the mind. Because I feel that when I'm there, I'm kind of on holy ground. I've always thought that. So my love of Hopkins is I don't know anyone who crawled back as far as he did successfully. The crawling back is so tough that T.S. Eliot wrote about it in that magnificent words from Four Quartets. 
where he essentially said how he kept failing as a poet. And he said, uh, ironically, in what is arguably the greatest poem of the 20th century, each venture, what's a venture? A venture is an attempt to say something fresh, is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate. That's my favourite phrase. It's a raid on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling and undisciplined squads of emotion. So he's expressed there the great effort we have to express ourselves. Who's seen the Italian movie Il Postino? Yeah, great, great, great. Do yourself a favour, beg, borrow or steal a copy of it. It's all about this. It's the most amazing movie about uh, how an illiterate postman on an island of Italy meets a Nobel Prize winning poet. When and if you see the movie, knowing how spooky it is that art imitates life, all I'll tell you is you'll see the movie is dedicated to the Italian actor who played the postman. It's dedicated to him because he died the day after they stopped filming. He made the film knowing he had a severe heart condition, but he just it was the most precious film and he had to get it done. And uh, they all hoped he would get it done and then get a valve replacement, but he didn't make it. He died the day after. So he was a, a nominated for the Academy Award, which was very rare back when it was made as a foreign actor. What we'll see that Hopkins does in order to claw back there is Hopkins destroys words. He destroys grammar. It's like a cubist painter where if he puts things into a sentence, you'll be familiar with the sentence. It'll become too predictable for you and we'll all be in this charade, this cosmetic place that's too tidy for what's going on inside of me. So what Hopkins does mentally is to, as it were, melt down words and then with a brilliant sense of intuition, find a feeling in himself and be so true to that feeling that he just lets the words splice themselves onto that feeling. Does that image make a sense? And when you read the poems, the initial impression you get is like looking at a confusing cubist painting, except it all makes sense, incredible sense. But you, you come to a feeling as if you've never seen that feeling before. Now, in doing that, you have to remember when he was doing that. 1870. 1870, when people were writing rhyming couplets and doddrill stuff. He was so far off the planet that, as you'll see, his poems were never published. But he always knew what he was doing. He never doubted himself. As a result, in many ways, he's the architect. That's why he said he's the, you know, the Bob Dylans of the world, the modern verse. Even T.S. Eliot, it's almost like impossible to think of them not being, or perhaps less so Eliot, but he's created this postmodern sense of fluidity with language that we're all now very familiar with. Before I begin the tour of Hopkins, asking a really important question, which is, why should we bother studying him? And in particular, in gospel conversations. Why is he relevant? Why would anyone bother? I've already said that he nicely developed some of the themes we've had before with Duns Scotus. A lot of people like Richard Raw today. Does anyone like reading, listening to Richard Raw? Well, he's heavily, he's a lover of Hopkins. Essentially, the lineage with Richard Raw is St. Francis of Assisi, who's 
almost like a folk type version of Duns Scotus. So there's, there's a lineage there. And somebody once said to me that the freshest thinking around the Bible and Bible colleges and theologians in the last 30 or 40 years comes from either history or literature. And so if you take John Walton and Ian Proven, I mean, they're just putting, and Tom Wright, you know, they're historians and, and done a great service in taking the text of the Bible out of a religious box. Well, on the other side is the lit literary box. And, and the literary box probably moves more into philosophy, which is, of course, where Hopkins is. And he stands for what you could call a romantic view of theology. That's not my phrase. That's John Milbank's phrase. If you, if you ever listen to John Milbank, he's hideously abstract and intellectual. But he, he would call himself a romantic theologian versus an analytic one. These people take poetry very seriously, not just because it, it's... It, see, poets are the best in the world at words, which is what philosophers try to do, and they do it better than philosophers, if they're bright. So a very good example, if you want to treat, give yourself a... Who likes Leonard Cohen here? Hey, a few of us. I'd recommend Professor Philip Roseman. He was one of the talkers at the recent uh, Cambridge Trinitarian Ontologies Conference. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Ireland. He's German, I think. He speaks with a, certainly a, a you know, Germanic accent. So this is his inaugural lecture, which you just get on YouTube. Roseman, I think it's R-O-S-E-M-A-N-N. And he's giving his inaugural public lecture. So guess what he gives it on? Leonard Cohen. And it is the most magnificent analysis of one of Leonard Cohen's last songs you'll ever hear from a philosopher. And he opens up by saying, why am I talking about Leonard Cohen? I mean, he said, well, I think they're better philosophers than philosophers. <laughs> Leonard Cohen is. So, so people taking poetry seriously, not just for entertainment value or light value, because, because of their power over fluid language, they can get into the metaphysics and transcendence and the mystery better than, than, than other people can. That lecture is a good example. There really good reasons, but the main reason that I think Hopkins is worth effort is because in gospel conversations where we're looking at what I like calling the creation gospel. And, you know, I've often critiqued the post-Reformation gospel, which is too sin-based. So you start from the premise of sin, Interestingly, uh, when I had dinner with John Walton a couple of months ago, he said exactly the same for me, word for word, what I've just said. He said he thinks the primary categories in Genesis 1 are not sin, but order, disorder and non-order. If we begin the Bible in Genesis 1 and creation, I think it gives us a more expansive view of the gospel. That's where we need help because... What do we mean by taking a richer view of creation? And it's hard to express. It's hard to express what we mean by that, which is where Hopkins can help us. Job 38 is incredibly significant to what I've just said. Because as you know, the book of Job, phenomenal kind of Old Testament philosophy, it is Job and his four comforters and their false comforters and they're all offering solutions, diagnoses of his situation. And of course, if you've read it, you'd recognise part of the power of this book, which is scary, is their solutions are the sort of stuff I'd be saying too. 
Well, it's not that it's trite. <laughs> you know, they're, they're smart. And they're all, God is not interested in all of them. When God speaks, this is what he says, and I think it's really significant for us and for everybody. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set and who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. If you were at my shoulder when I made the universe, you would be able to have a conversation with me. Isn't that wonderful? And of course, that's the whole of the rest of it. I think Hopkins lets us stand behind the shoulders of God as he's making the universe. Now, what do I mean by that? Something very important happens here, which is that God turns the tables on humanity because humanity likes to ask questions of creation, like cause and effect questions and why this and why that. So, no, 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 creation's talking to you and it's asking you a question. It's called existence and life and the ball's in your court. Do you understand the power of that? Creation is talking to us and it's asking us a question. How significant am I? So that's what God does here. Creation starts asking questions of you. Were you there? Do you, do you understand the measuring line? Do you understand the foundations? What, of course, we find is that this massive picture, which is a paradigm shift, is picked up not at the margins in the New Testament, but at the core by Paul, John, and the writer to the Hebrews. And when they want to talk about the vast interpretation they've developed of Jesus Christ, they don't go. Universally, they don't go to forgiveness of sins. They go to creation. We are familiar with the most famous example, 1 John 1. Just, this is kind of so spine-tingling. I'm learning it off by heart. I, I say it to myself you know, every two mornings or so. That which was from the beginning. What does this mean? Actually, that which was beside the shoulder of God prior to the creation of the cosmos, we heard, we saw with our eyes, we touched, concerning the word of life. This word was made manifest and made accessible to us. So positioning Christ back at the core of things, creation. Hopkins's poetry spans Job 38 to John 1 because Hopkins finds Christ everywhere in his poetry. So that's the uh, theological backdrop that I think Hopkins can help us with. And let's begin the journey. He didn't live very long. He died young, 45 years old. Probably his life was weakened by uh, the extremities of the Jesuit lifestyle, possibly. He came from a loving family. There's no kind of trauma in his family. Wonderful mother, wonderful father, intellectually curious. Family of artists. Two of his brothers were artists. Father was a semi-philosopher, amateur philosopher. Brilliant kid at school. Tough, caning, old-fashioned headmaster. And he led revolts against him. Hopkins led revolts against him. Refused to give in. Strong, independent spirit. 
won prizes, went to Oxford, had a lifelong friendship with a guy called Robert Bridges. Bridges was the guy who in the end published his poems. 1918, not a single poem, not a line was published in his life. Not a line. And he kept going. I, I, I just want to pause there. This, nothing spoke to me about character like this. I mean, we all like to get some audience in life, don't we? We like to get some recognition or else we'd give up and sulk. He never gave up. He knew what he was doing was important and if not a single other human being but his friends ever read the poems, he was happy because they were for the glory of God. I think he had frustrations as well, but, but this incredible character of this sense of his connection with God. He died of typhoid fever and his last words were, I'm so happy, I'm so happy, I'm so happy. Religious journey, he was Anglican, never, he was never a, a uh, agnostic or atheist or anything like that, a religious family. Converted to Catholicism at um, Oxford. Something interesting was going on there. Cardinal John Henry Newman, who was a brilliant evangelical who converted to Catholicism, was a mentor of his. What I've read of Newman's pretty spectacular stuff, so I don't know what quite was going on, but anyway, um, that happened. He then entered the Jesuit order, so he's 24, and he burned all his poems. He was, trying to write, he was writing poetry all the time. So he thought it wasn't God's will and plan, so he burned all his poems. Uh, he then spent nine years studying to become a priest, nine years. During that time, he encountered uh, the philosophy of Duns Scotus when he was 28, and that was transformative for him, just gave him a, a metaphysical structure that, that was uh, meaningful. The years 1866 to 1875, he wrote no poetry at all, but he wrote journals, and I'll show you some of them. Wherever he went, he wrote diaries. He didn't pass an ant, he didn't pass a twig, he didn't pass a cloud without rejoicing in it. The whole of creation was, was talking to him. 1875, a ship got wrecked in the Thames called the Deutschland and several nuns died on it and he suggested to his rector that he would like to, he was very touched by this and his rector said to him, you should write a poem about it. So he did. He now had the permission of the Jesuits to write and that's when he began his poetic career, 31. He wrote The Wreck of the Deutschland. They all thought it was great so they sent it to the Jesuit magazine called The Monthly and they wouldn't publish it. That was the end of his publishing career. Kind of like the guys who said no to the Beatles. <laughs> His last years were, look, tormented is not the right word. He was a really sensitive soul. And part of that was taking social work very seriously. Poverty really influenced him. It was a heavy burden for him to bear. Not his poverty, but the poverty of people he was trying to help. His final appointment was the chair of classics in Dublin in 1885. He died very soon after that. And there he was very tormented by the plight of the Irish. He was a semi-communist. He was very, had a very uneasy relationship with capitalism. 1885 to 1889, he wrote the so-called terrible sonnets where he was really grappling with depression. But depression, which always has a, a light of God underneath it. To the extent that uh, one, of his, uh, one of the great critics talking about him said they were his crowning achievement. Those 
sonnets. Got the great line, and I can still remember when I was in year 10, I had a wonderful English teacher, sweet Tom Brewers. He turned on my mind in so many ways. Thank you, Lord, for Tom. He had the line, from the terrible sonnets, more pangs will schooled at four pangs wilder ring. You should write that down because we've all been through that. More pangs will schooled at four pangs wilder ring. Because we're like, year 10, what on earth does this mean? And Tom told us the story. Had a friend, went to hospital, had an operation, you know, boring a hole in one of his legs to do some work with the bone, excruciating pain. Got through it, six weeks, recovered from the pain. Then they told him, now we've got to do the other leg. More pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Which hurt more, the second one or the first one? It was the second one because they'd been schooled at four pangs. So once you've been through an ache and another one comes and it's the same ache, all of those four pangs of schooled pain and anxiety and they're gonna, it's going to wilder ring next time down. See that? So much packed up in one line of his, one of his poems. Famously, he invented this phrase, these two big words, inscape and in stress. I'm going to just concentrate on inscape tonight. And the question is, what does this word inscape mean? It's been really intriguing to people ever since he said it. I think this picture possibly tells you the story. There's a landscape, which is an, an extra version, an external thing that we see out there. It's almost like inscape is the corollary inside of me of a landscape. And there's something as big inside. If I, if, as we all look at that, we all look at that, and it's massive, but inside ourselves, we are arranging it in our heads, and that lives inside us. So it was his interest in our internal ability to shape things. So that's kind of what it is. And people have tried to... Here are some of the definitions of what it meant. The soul and spirit of a thing. Anything, including a leaf. The thisness of a thing. I don't know how you say that. Hekitis. That is actually a phrase from Duns Scotus. Scotus talked about the thisness of things and their unique identity in its particularity, not in universal categories. That'll become important. I understand things by their thingness, not by their belonging to some great metaphysical category. More complex but more complete, a name for the individually distinctive form made up of tangible qualities which constitutes the rich and revealing oneness of any natural object. Outward reflection of the inner nature of a thing. If that leaves, are they, are they real or plastic, do you think? They're real. For Hopkins, that leaf was an object of enormous mystery. It was not just mechanics. And it had a shape that was stunning and he could spend hours trying to work that shape out. Just of that leaf. And it didn't do him any good to say it's a leaf. It's, there's a category called leaf. There are billions of them on the planet. Stop thinking about it. So particularity was very important. When I read this, of course, you know, I kept thinking God is not a universal thinker. Milbank says that. And I just keep thinking of what Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. 
because we, we can think we're in a big category called humanity. I'm one of billions. How can God care about so many people? Hopkins had no problem with that. This particularity was very important. Hopkins's own definition is the best of all. This is very powerful. All the world is full of inscape. This is his words. And chance, left free to act, falls into an order as well as a purpose. Packed into that sentence, there's a vast amount, which I think if I went into, I'd, uh, would take me too much time now. But it, that, that definition there is, is suggesting that the world is made up of a strange mixture of energy, change and form. And the form is controlling the energy. So he was happy with chaos, happy with energy, happy with change, but he thought around it all there was an enveloping structure that created everything. I think a diagram's the best way to explain this. If we were standing at the side of God, what would we see when we look at a tree? If you're a materialist, you see there are many trees on the planet. There are, there are just so many of them, millions and millions, and in that variety, there's the only thing that's universal are their materials. It's the little bits and pieces of the tree that make it universal. If you're the opposite, you're Plato, you say, no, there's one perfect tree in heaven, and all the other trees are made out of that from that one, and, and the perfection is only in heaven. They're the two sort of alternatives. Hopkins didn't go there. He said every tree expresses itself. It's like a living, expressing itself in terms of shape and colour and music and beauty. And it has form. That form is not just a mechanical form or an aesthetic form. It's actually the, the soul of the thing, the being of the thing. And furthermore, that being is the gift of God. So he had a much more connected picture of things that had particularity and beauty and form, but this was participation in God. So that would be a diagrammatic way of him describing Inscape. So as we go through some of the examples now, I think that'll make sense to you. Does it make sense so far? Oh, it's a bit abstract. Okay. Um, now... We have a problem which is uh, blindness and Hopkins wrote this poem uh, in his early days before he burned them all. So he wrote that when he was, say, 20. The poem's called Non Dum, meaning not yet. It's a fabulous poem. It's a, it's not, he's still using pretty conventional techniques, but this is the problem we all have, we being us human beings. This is just an extract. We see the glories of the earth but not the hand that wrought them all. Night to a myriad worlds gives birth, yet like a lighted empty hall where stands no host at door or hearth, vacant creation's lamps appall. The earth has glories, but if we don't see the hand that wrought them, it's like entering an empty theatre with no one to greet us. And creation's lamps appall us. We don't, they, don't, they don't speak to us, they have no wonder. Night 
does give birth to a myriad of worlds, but we don't see them all. We're, we're like entering a dark, a darkened amphitheatre and, and because there's no one there to greet us, we don't see anything. And, and I think that poem explains you know, the world we live in today and that we can wander past the wonder of creation all around us and just not be mesmerised by it, not be stunned by it. I'm assuming myriad worlds is a reference to stars. To stars, yeah. So, yeah, the, the scariness of space or the glory of space are two, the, the human life are the two alternatives. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so even night give, does give birth to that world, but, but if we don't see the hand of God there, we don't see anything. Yeah. Let's have a look at his journals. He wrote about everything. This is the upper Grindelwald glacier, which he visited in 1867. He wrote about it. Now, in the upper, and this is just like, you get these cascade of sentences, this is just one. In the upper Grindelwald glacier, between the bed or highest stage, was a descending limb which was like the rude and knotty bossings of a stromber shell. That's just one sentence of dozens. <laughs> That's a stromber shell. Yeah, he absolutely got it. And for him, there's the, 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 the ribbed connections of the stromber shell and the ribbed connections of the glacier are part of, a, of, a, of the same voice. It's cool, isn't it? That one. It really is close. He spent a lot of time looking at leaves. He worried about them a lot. And uh, this is a great extract from his diary where he says, finally, finally, I think I understand the oak, the, the, the oak leaf. Alone in the woods and in Mr. Nelthorpe's park. Whence one gets such a beautiful view southwards over the country. And then he writes, next lines, I have now found the law of the oak leaves. Like, we're all looking for the law of the oak leaves? Like, he's the only guy looking for it, you know. It is of platter-shaped stars altogether. Stars shaped like platters. The leaves lie close like pages, packed and as if drawn tightly together. That's just the beginning of it because he's found the law of the oak leaves. And he's so excited by it. Everything excites him. Everything surprises him. And you look at it you say, yeah, they are like platters. They are like plates with, of stars. This was his favourite, the bluebell. The bluebell. And he had this bluebell that he loved. And he said, I do not think I have ever seen anything more beautiful than the bluebell I have been looking at. I know the beauty of the Lord by it. Its inscape is mixed of strength and grace like an ash tree. And on he goes. He goes on with description after description after description. When he wasn't writing poetry, he sort of was writing poetry. And he was building up this picture of how I can throw words at nature in order to find this inscape inside of nature. That gives you a feel for it. What I'll do now, so does that make sense? And yeah, I hope it gives you some taste for wanting to read more of his diaries. They're, they're quite spectacular. But he was obviously a manic, intense person. I mean, he was the sort of person for whom life was psychedelic, really. Now, um, 
I'm going to finish by, you know, I'm going to skip through three poems and that'll do us, but you've got to put your seatbelts on. I'm not going to go into them in a lot of detail, I'm just going to throw them at you. I'll say a few things about them. The first one is the really, really famous one. It's really his great architecture poem. I just think it's magnificent. It's the great poem of nature, which is God's grandeur. You all know God's grandeur? Let's look at God's grandeur, which is now, if you, you put what I said about Inscape beside God's grandeur, you see what he's talking about. And he's really talking about a burning bush experience. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It will gather to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade. Bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. I think this is pretty important where we are now with ecology. For all this, nature is never spent. I love this line. It brings tears to my eyes. There lives the dearest, freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, ah, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. You really need Beethoven's Ninth or something playing, don't, don't you think? Or <laughs> Mahler. It's just wonderful. It's wondrous. It almost destroys it if you start going into all the tools he's got in there of assonance, music, stunning words. It's pretty obvious what he's saying. He's opening up with a burning bush thing, the, the metaphor of electricity, the world being charged with the grandeur of God. That's, what, that's Inscape. Everything is charged with the grandeur of God. That's why I've got up there from Colossians 1 verse 17, in him all things hold together. That's the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And then, of course, his question, which is abrupt and introduces a totally different sound to the poem, why do men then now not wreck, wreck as in reckon, his rod, his measuring line? What, what is it about human beings that we just take, take no notice of him? We're surrounded by glory. Why? And, and, and I don't know that the poem can answer that question. It's just stunned by that. And then you get these terrible, plodding, repetitive, sludgy type of syllables. Trod, trod, bleared, smeared. I mean, you knew how to do kind of really pukey language, you know. Why? Because everything is now... We're, we're polluting the world. We're smudging it all up. And that wonderful line, nor can foot feel being shot. In other words, metaphorically, these shoes mean we're no longer in connection with the ground. We don't know what's going on. And then, of course, it's, a, it's of course, a sonnet. And, the, and sonnets have various structure. And this sonnet, what is 8-6? Eight, that's 8-6. Is it called something? Is it Petrarca? Uh, no. The bolter is the change of the, twi of the switch. It's a switch, yep. So the switch is between 8 and 6. Yeah. And then... 
the last, the sestet, is just this beautiful language of redemption that we can't kill nature. Because of, so inscape isn't just a form thing, it's God and God's word in it. And finally, the Holy Spirit and the beautiful maternal image of holding the world. The last two lines are, um, you know, which you want to just get a, a little sense into the stunning intricacy. He's very good at words going two ways. It's called connotation. But he's good when they go opposite ways. There's one word there that is totally paradoxical. Do you know which word it is? Bent. Bent. Yeah. bent. Face value, it means the world's screwed up. That, that's its meaning, the bent world. However, inside that word, which qualifies the corruption of the world, is what? What's the secondary meaning? The bending. The, 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 the Holy Spirit is bending. So this very same word, face value says we're corrupt, has within it its second layer of meaning is redemption. In one word. You have the gospel in one word. Now that's bending to come down. And it's bending to come down, it's incarnation, it's maternal as well. Maternal. Correct. And then if you want to do, the last line is stunning. Bent world broods with warm breasts with the WB, 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 BW. It's just an amazing symmetry of sound. I know when I used to teach this and people would look, like another student out of those to do this, and say, you've got to be kidding, this guy couldn't have like deliberately meant all this. Like how on earth can you get this? This is intuition and scholarship at work. So that's his, you know, I suppose most architectural poem on his picture of the world. This is almost as famous because Eugene Peterson wrote a book that really made this the title of the book, didn't he? Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. The verse that came to my mind here is, through us he makes the fragrance of his knowledge manifest in every place. As kingfishers catch fire when they fly, you know, a kingfisher flies so fast you just get an iridescent uh, glimpse of, of, of the ref reflected light of the wing. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow, swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing, each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. This is now the inscape. Each thing in the world is dealing out what is dwelling inside it. It's expressing itself. Deals out that, and what is inside me is being. So, Ron, this is very much existence. You know, like the, the inscape is the being, just the existence. Selves, goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me for that I came. Phenomenal sense that my identity, this is deep for me. How do I know your character? I see what you do. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, 
Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. I mean, that's just a breathtaking journey towards incarnational presence of God in Christ and that the best of everybody is actually a seed of Christ back to God. Good stuff. The top half is very Don Scotus. This is very Don Scotus, this sense of individuality. You know, that's really important pastorally and ethically because I, I actually think, when I think about sins, I often wonder that envy is among the worst. Corrosive sins we all have. We, we all have it because envy is I wish I was somebody else, not me. That is kind of saying I'm rejecting the providence of God in whatever my DNA is and my history is, so I wish I was someone else. And I've thought that's very corrosive. And in a way, that last part, not in a way, very definitely saying, no, no, be yourself, like self, find out who you are and self. And he just has this example of the just man. He makes up the, I don't think justice is a verb. He's made it up. Hmm? It's a great word. The just man justices. In other words, your verbs show me who, your character. Your, the adjective becomes a verb. But then, which is magnificent, and I now think of James 1, don't be deceived, every good gift comes from above. Every time we see a just man justicing, we've seen a glimpse of Christ. So this inscape is not some kind of fragmented inscape. Going back to in the beginning was the word, Everything is expressing Christ. As, and that's why the poem ends with that. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Love and, and the sense that it ends with not just the incarnation, but the actual, the actual observer of all and lover of all is the Father, who immediately that invokes the famous verses in Isaiah where the, the Lord said, you know, my eyes are running too. I think of John's gospel. You know, when John heard a loud voice in heaven saying, who's worthy to take the scroll? And no one was found worthy. The Father is looking for that kind of Christ reflection through the, through the earth. So that's his, uh, one of his great poems. Let's end now with the last one. This is a real heavy one. Has anyone read, look at, look at this for a title, like, that nature is a Heracletian fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. So, so who's read this poem? Right. You just got to close your eyes and do not try to understand it. Right. Because I barely understand it and I'm not going to try too hard. But this is, remember what I said that he destroys grammar, destroys words and then puts them back together? So this is what he does. So I just need to tell you a little bit of why he said Heracletian, who Heracletus was. Heracletus was the pre-Socratic philosopher who invented the phrase Logos. Don't think John the Apostle invented it. It was Heraclitus around about 500 BC. He's famous for his theory of Logos. If you read it, you think the guy's a Christian. The presence of the governing idea and the divine in, in the earth. Heraclitus was also famous for loving paradox. He thought life was a mixture of dynamism and controls. 
In, in other words, he thought change and dynamism was not a problem but was part of the essence of things but somehow or other was controlled by some kind of logos. Can you see why Hopkins would have liked that? It's very Inscape type. I'm going to read it out. You've got to close your eyes and go with the flow. I love it because it is about the best thing on the resurrection I've read. It's going to end on the resurrection. Begins with, first bit will be kind of the glory of creation. Then it goes into the dark side, a bit like God's grandeur. And despair, this was almost the last poem he wrote, last couple of years of his life. Here we go. Cloud, puffball, torn tufts, tossed pillows, flaunt forth. Then Chevy on an air-built thoroughfare. Think clouds. Heaven roisterers in gay gangs they throng. They glitter in marches down rough cast, down dazzling whitewash, wherever an elm arches, shive lights and shadow tackle in long lashes, lace, lance and pear, the wind blowing through the trees. Delightfully, the bright wind, boisterous, ropes, wrestles, beats earth bare of yester tempest's creases. Gets a bit darker now. This is about the seared trade. In pool and rut, peel, parches, squandering ooze to squeezed dough, crust, dust, stanches, starches, squadron masks and man marks. Treadmire toil there, foot fretted in it. Million fueled, nature's bonfire burns on but quench her bonniest, dearest, to her, her clearest selved spark man, how fast his fire dint, his mark on mind is gone. Both are in an unfathomable, all is in an enormous dark, drowned. Oh, pity and indignation, man shape, that shone sheer off, disseveral, a star, death, blocks, blots, black out, nor mark is any of him at all so stark, but vastness blurs and time, beats level. Enough, the resurrection, a heart's clarion, away, griefs gasping, joyless days, dejection, Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam. Flesh fade and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm. World's wirefire leave but ash. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this jack joke, poor Potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond, immortal diamond. Got to read it a few times, but you get a sense this means something somewhere. Do you, you get a, you're sort of grasping at it. It's almost like he's destroyed all the words. He's, he's wanting to talk about resurrection, death, the wonder of creation, how we screw it all up. And he's got to do that by throwing all these words at it. And you can, it is an, it is. 
Reminds me a lot of the later paintings of people like Turner. It just becomes abstract. It's almost, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a shimmering lattice that is half in heaven and half on the earth. As I say, this was very close to the end of his life. But it's so intriguing to me because this is Hopkins at it. You know, this is the, this is the old, old man. He was 43, 44 when he wrote it. But he knew he was dying. He had a premonition. He was not well. And he just begins but with this ecstatic view of the heavens and the joyous clouds and then the wind coming down and then what appears to be with the rut. I, just, I think it's the image, I don't know what you think, Andrew, of kind of a road with rutted and, and, and where the wagon wheels, you know when wagon wheels go through mud and they begin to parch it and peel it and it gets crusty and now we've got dust happening, you know. So we've gone from the clouds to the dust. It's the way all of our trade just blears and smears with toil. And then, you know, almost it becomes like a, a battle between nature and man. You know, nature's, it's bonfires burning on, but we're doing our best to quench it. Isn't this, I mean, this guy really, he's today's poet with, you know, climate degradation. And then it ends, both are in an unfathomable, enormous dark. Us and nature, that's, I don't know, that's how I read it. I don't know, what would you say? Yeah, we're kind of, man and nature are taking each other down. You know, the glory of nature, it's all going down. And then you get in the middle here these just the dark, drowned, pity, indignation, man shape that once shone is now sheared off. It's to several. You know, there's this, the degradation of the image of God. Death blots black out. It's like death is, you know, the shattering negation of how all this poem began, of all the joy, of all the hope. And then, and then in the middle of it all, it's like he commands himself, enough, the resurrection. This phenomenal image that God has shone across his foundering deck, the deck of his soul is, you know, he's on, a, he's on a ship that's foundering and God shone a beam across it, an eternal beam. This life of Christ on the planet. Flesh will fall to the residuary worm where, where indeed the world, world's wildfire will, the best it can do is leave ash, there's no resurrection there, but then in a flash at a trumpet, I think a one, a 1 Corinthians 15, you know, and the last trumpet will sound, I'm all at once, all at once what Christ is. He, now he's right in 1 Corinthians 15, when I become what Christ is because he became what I am, and he's now got a very patristic father's sense of this integration with Christ. This Jake, that's himself, I'm a joke, you know, I'm pathetic, this poor pot's herd, this patch, this matchwood, and he doesn't add a verb, but just these magnificent final words. What do I become? An immortal diamond. An immortal diamond as I share in the resurrection of Christ and shine like a star. Pretty good on the comfort of the resurrection, don't you think? That's Hopkins, and I think that's where this wondrous theory of InScape just bursts out into the resurrection as the final InScape of all things. So, there you have it, Gerard Manley Hopkins.